Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi red juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com slash genius. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius Podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today I have Ilya Bunyevich, PhD. He's an associate professor and undergraduate advisor, part of the geology department of earth and environmental science, part of the College of Science and Technology at Temple University. So Ilya, thank you for coming. Sure, thank you, and thank you to all the listeners. Yeah, tell me a bit about your uh, your research currently. What are you working on? Uh, right now, I'm actually getting into a really exciting field called uh, zoo geomorphology, which is basically translated as impact of animals on the landscapes of the earth and everything from deep sea down to the mountains. So, I actually, recently had projects uh, using examples in the deep sea working in Mediterranean, uh, actually with Bob Ballard's team, the oceanographer who found the wreck of the Titanic. We work with him quite a bit. So I was specifically looking at the impact of fish and large animals on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, huh. and then taking it through coastal environments, which is the focus of most of my research, up into the mountains. I work with some folks in nearby sphere too in Arizona. We're looking at how uh, 
basically, you know, groundhogs and other large animals alter the soil on the mountainside. So we spend a wide spectrum. It's quite unusual for a geologist, but a thing to sort of as a take home, I think the impact of large animals on the landscape has been woefully understudied, let alone quantified. You know, so, so why do you why do you say uh, large animals? Is it because you know what earthworms do to soil, for instance, is well quantified, and large animals effects are not? Yes, yes, and earthworms are a little easier to study, and you are correct. I mean, obviously, a million earthwork earthworms may re- sort of move around as much soil maybe as a uh, three or four bison walking around. But yeah, earthworms are a little easier to study, but things like you know landforms, um, you know river courses and shorelines a lot of them have been affected uh, by much larger animals so again there are examples back in the 70s when geologists studied the effects of bison on uh, actually predetermining some of the small river courses and now we find evidence of dinosaurs doing the same hippos in Okavanga delta in africa and the key is unless you study it ahead of time you may never know where the small river flows now maybe it's a deer trail in pennsylvania that actually crossed a river, and then during a large flood, the river now took a new course. And from this point on, without us knowing, because we maybe never observed it or photographed it ahead of time, we never know now why it has this really interesting new course. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you could tell me some examples. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about the deer example, and you know, have you observed exactly such a thing? Maybe exactly. give me a couple other examples. Sure, sure. Well, I tell deer, small creeks in Pennsylvania, yeah, they cross the stream in one place, deer trail. And when the river floods, because there is a little bit of a break in the bank, in a levee, it takes that course. Listeners can, you know, you can also think of uh, millions of uh, wildebeest crossing rivers in Africa. And again, when rivers flood downstream, it may actually take take the course of that trail with elephants, again, with hippos in the uh, in many parts of Africa, but especially in Botswana, Akawanga Delta, hippo trails then become the conduits for, uh, you know, for the rivers during wet season. I'm not even mentioning beaver, sort of keystone landscape engineer. And again, another observation is that a lot of the animals that we now view as endangered or minimally uh, sort of affecting the landscape, they were extremely important, you know, before the humans sort of came to the scene. So... Seals, sea lions, walrus, sea turtles, beaver, deer, bison. There are in the tens or hundreds of millions uh, as recently as four, five, six hundred years ago, mammoth and so on. So even though our view today is rather limited or their impact in the landscape is rather limited due to their limited numbers, some were taken all the way to extinction, some are rebounding. Where would there be a big impact? Let's say the bison on the Great Plains of the, Plains, of the, you know, exactly. the Midwest. So yeah. what did they do in mass? Because there was supposedly hundreds of thousands or millions of them. So what would they have done? Yeah, at one time, 60 million just before calling. Sorry. So they just basically by using, you know, using the sort of habitual trails that would cost lower areas in the ground. So again, when rivers flood, some river courses may take those trails. Sometimes all the mud that gets stuck to their hoofs gets uh, deposited when they cross lakes. So they actually segment the lake. So you may have a very, very long, shallow lake, and all of a sudden it's broken down into a bunch of sections because bison, as they travel across these lakes, all the mud washed from their hooves as they cross the lake 
gets deposited as ridges. So there have been scientists who studied that. So the bison actually, by producing channels in one spot, they actually move that mud and deposit ridges and break apart lakes and small rivers in another part. And this is happening in Europe too. There's obviously European bison. In well, what do you mean? So like, like the, the bison would step, and I'm imagining it's stepping into a, like a mucky river, and it's, when it pulls its leg out, it draws up the mud so that it's maybe higher than it would have been on the bottom, and it's creating maybe a ridge that way? Is that how it happens? Yeah, basically, imagine you approach a shallow lake. So as you approach the lake and you're walking through muddy sediment, the mud gets stuck to your shoes. So as you walk by, you leave behind your footprints and a little bit of erosion because some of the mud is now stuck to your shoes. So you leave behind a little bit of an indentation, right? As your footprints, let's say. And all the mud stuck to your shoes now gets washed away and deposited in the wetland, in the first wetland you're going to step in, a lake, a shallow stream, right? If it's really quiet water. So you've just created footprints or little indentations where you walked. And you've just deposited all that mud in the water body that you crossed. So now imagine not yourself, but hundreds of thousands of bison walking back and forth in exactly the same trail. So now they're producing millions of little indentations on the landscape. And they're depositing many, many tons of mud in the wetlands they cross on the way. So you'd have an indentation leading to a lake, which now has a ridge. And then back to indentation on the other side of the lake. So has this been observed in modern times or in historical writings? Yes. Or is it some of it's been observed. Yes. Some of it's been observed in recent times. And then maybe some of the relic features have been studied. But this is the key there is uh, studying these relic features is extremely difficult. Because unless you find footprints, you may not even realize that these large gullies in the landscape are produced by bison, let alone ridges that are segmenting the lakes is the result of bison. Just like if I tell you that thousands of depressions in ancient beaches are due to sea turtle nests, not due to storms and tsunamis, you'd say uh, unlikely because there are only six sea turtles that we've observed on that beach today. Yes, but 600 years ago, there were 6,000 sea turtles all nesting on the same beach, the same beach where they're born. So even as a geologist, it's important to me to be able to differentiate between thousands of sea turtle nests, ancient ones, and thousands of depressions and channels created by storms and tsunamis. One example I read about in the alchemy of air, I I think it's Thomas Hagen. Mm -hmm. He talked about before um, the Haber-Bosch process to make fertilizer the modern way, um, they would go to these islands where birds for like thousands of years had pooped and made mountains of bird poop. And they used that for the fertilizer. And the people like excavated the mountains down to, you know, to, to the bare rock. But yes. literally they created mountains from their poop over the years. So there's an example of biogenic deposition. It's called guano. So it's phosphorus rich bird. And there's an entire nation called Nauru, N-A-U-R-U, right near the equator in the Pacific. The entire wealth of that island nation of Nauru is based on that. And there's a neat article called The Squid and the Cadillacs. And the idea is the reason these folks in Nauru drive Cadillacs and they're rather rich is because of that very interesting behavior of squid. Adults feed you know, near the top of the ocean at night and then little squid during the day. 
So throughout the entire day, there is a food for, for marine birds, right? Because they either have adult or baby squid near the ocean surface night and day. So because there is a constant nonstop supply of food, there's so many birds and there's only one little island and many, many square miles around. That is why birds nest and eventually poop on that island of Nauru. So the wealth of that entire nation, it's a country, is entirely 99% due to the bird eating and nesting and pooping, but ultimately to the, due to this behavior of squid, which come up during day or night, depending on how old they are. But ultimately, yes, it's a geological resource, just like oil and gas and anything else. It's organic resource that gave wealth to that particular nation. Exactly. That's really cool. Yeah. Example. Yeah. Now, it's a great example. They have, uh, you know, bumper stickers that say powered by poop or powered yes. by guano. You know? Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. That's a, how did you get into studying this? This is a very unusual thing, but cool thing to study. Yeah. I mean, again, it's sort of this inter, it's this interface. I've always been interested in sort of large animals, you know, not so much biology or anatomy per se, but their ecology. Then there is a geological aspects that I'm interested in how the earth works. So you combine the two and you get something like the studying of the impact of animals on the landscape. Uh, so you can obviously study how animals interacted with the, the ecosystems. That's the study of paleo ecology, ancient interaction, but that's more the food chains and so on. I'm specifically interested on in how animals affected the landforms, like the sediments, the rocks, even. I mean, there, you know, there are some bees in the Midwest that that actually eat rock and they make their nests in the rock. So we're not talking about swallows digging into a soft bank of the river. That's obvious. I'm talking about animals that actually produce holes in the rock. There are clams that do oh, wow. it. There are bees that do it, that bore into sandstone. And there are some other animals. So we're beyond just animals digging in soft sediment or soil. We're into animals that can actually, you know, that can rock. And again, humans coming in into our, with our technology now, obviously, we're, we've taken place. So it's a simultaneous near extinction or reduction in the impact of large animals and kind of a sort of increase in human activity that now we say everything that we see now is unprecedented due to human activity. Yes, obviously, animals don't build concrete buildings and concrete dams, but beavers build dams just out of twigs and birds build nests also out of twigs. So animals are also engineers. They just, you know, use their own sort of technology right, and right. tools. But over millions of years with the number of animals of different sizes, of different quantities. Well, uh, it's not just, not it's not just animals. It, it sounds like insects are engineers and, um, yes. you know, uh, bacteria themselves appear to be engineers and make biofilms and, you know, influence their environment as well. So I guess maybe all living things are engineering. Yeah. Yeah, you look from termite mounds, yeah, to bacterial mats. Exactly. Again, I'm more interested in the larger animals. Maybe that's more my affinity. And actually a little more difficult to study under controlled conditions, right? I cannot take an aardvark and bring it to my lab. Uh, forget about permits. It's just impossible to do. I have to go to the zoo or I have to go to Africa. My recent student that graduated, he studied the impact of, you know, sea turtles or emerging sea turtle hatchlings. So we did some experiments in the lab with you know, water-filled balloons, but we actually got a small grant from Geological Society of America and were able to go to Virginia and image actual sea turtle nests and implications in the future uh, would be, we can actually image 
right before the hatchlings come out, we can actually image in real time. So whatever tools we use for our geological studies, we can easily transfer and help uh, ecologists to, again, map out, predict when the hatchlings come out completely non-invasively. So a lot of tools that I use are completely non-invasive, such as georadar, which basically x-rays the sand, and it can tell you about ancientness. It can tell you about hatchlings, sea turtle eggs, burrowing animals, protected snakes, ancient bison footprints. The sky is the limit. Well, why do you study this stuff? What, what are you hoping to figure out? Is it just intellectual curiosity or is there some other reason? No, there is a lot of application. You know, besides sort of the academic curiosity, near everything we do has some direct application. So, you know, the main part of my study is understanding the impact of storms and tsunamis and coastlines. That's sort of how I started. Now, all I'm doing, I'm using the same tools, but now I'm also adding, not replacing, but adding the impact of animals on these landforms. Again, both erosion and deposition. So again, a great example on the beach is a channel produced by a storm versus a channel or a depression produced by a sea turtle. Basically on an individual scale, not a big deal. But once you multiply it by the thousands, by the millions, I think the impact is enormous. And then you can connect the two easily. Whenever you have sea turtles nesting by the thousands, if then a storm comes, if a hurricane comes a day or a week later, all these vulnerable spots where a sea turtle dug, sometimes they dig through the dunes, sometimes they dig through the beach, all these little vulnerable spots become the foci of storm erosion. Just like today, whenever people dig a little bit through the dune, make a beach access, these become the places where the storm would exploit and flood the coastline because these are the low spots, the hot spots of erosion. So again, How, we see all of these things today with humans, why not animals? Yeah, that makes sense. How often are there things that happen that seem to be unexplained, but if you look at it from the context of what animals or creatures are, you know, rearranging the landscape can be explained? You know, are That's there... Fantastic, fantastic question. And again, sometimes it's, it's quite challenging, but I like the challenge. So you're basically a detective all the time. We're all all humans are naturally detective scientists, scientists especially. But once you deal with tracks and burrows, now you're truly like a whodunit. You're like basically um, you know, Sherlock Holmes of geology and ecology, trying to figure things out. Who made these tracks, right? Sea turtle tracks, just like tire tracks on the beach. But you're right. Unless, and I mentioned it earlier, unless you studied beforehand, it's very, very difficult. So again, example I give you with studying the impact of burrowing animals on the area of the unknown soldiers' graves at the Washington Crossing Memorial. So everybody knows about the Washington Crossing, the Delaware into Trenton. I live about five, six miles away. So 10 kilometers away from that area in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. So right now around the graves of unknown soldiers that across the Delaware with Washington, there's a lot of burrowing by groundhogs, bank swallows, and uh, moles, right? So that, that is a direct application folks in the Washington Crossing Historic Park need to know to protect the gravesite. Also, what we noticed and mapped are the large burrows produced by burrowing animals. And guess what happened during 2012? A record superstorm called Sandy, in addition to impacting coastline in New Jersey and along the coast, actually produced a lot of wind, which ripped out enormous oak trees. There were probably saplings when Washington crossed Delaware. So there are Trees, some of them are more than 200 years old, 
they were toppled by the wind stress, and a lot of them fell into the Delaware River. And a lot of them were made vulnerable because there was a lot of burrows among the roots of those trees. We photographed them before the storm. We studied them. We measured them. We actually x-rayed them. We imaged them with georadar beforehand. So now we know. Are these contemporary birds? Are these contemporary birds or these skeletons of ancient birds? No, no, burrows, not birds, burrows. Oh, burrows, burrows. Oh, so there's, oh, so in these trees, there was tons of burrows. And what was in the burrows? Exactly, exactly. Among the roots of these enormous ancient trees, again, 200-year-old trees, which were along the bank of the Delaware, again, right next to the soldiers' graves. There were, in addition to river erosion, they're also uh, Native American size from like 4,000 years ago. So extremely important historical landmarks, Right. So there is so much burrowing because there's a lot of loose material. There's so much burrowing by rodents and bank swallows that the bank is made vulnerable, whether there is erosion by the river or whether there's a wind stress pushing the trees. So because we knew there are a lot of burrows among the tree roots, we were not surprised to discover that right after Superstorm Sandy, a lot of these large trees that were made vulnerable by these holes, by these burrows in the bank, actually toppled right into the Delaware River. If we didn't study it ahead of time, we'd probably not even think about burrows, right? You'd say it's a river erosion, it's flood, maybe human foot traffic, maybe ice, maybe rain, maybe just wind. You'll come up with many, many different geological processes. But what will not make your top 10, I would argue to the listeners, is animals making holes in the ground. It just never makes our top 10. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with the ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice, with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi Red Juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com genius. Yeah, are there... Are there things that have happened that appear to be over geologic time, millions of years, but actually they can be explained by something that happened either by living creatures or not, but very quickly? Yes. Like, for instance, I had read, you know, Mount St. Helens, the, you know, the, the eruption there, um, a whole bunch of trees are blasted onto a lake and they sank and they made this and that and they decayed. And they could have, you know, if you looked at it later on, you might have said, oh, it took millions of years, but. If it was actually observed, it was maybe only a decade that it caused XYZ to happen. So yes. you observe that. Yes. So, and again, we have ways to date things. So if this is an issue, you can date a beaver chute stump. You can date these trees in a lake and you can realize they're young. But yes, it's actually, we're basically observing certain processes and then we can interpret the past. And 
all these events, whether they're done by extreme events, storms, tsunamis, landslides, earthquakes, or animals, they're extremely rapid on the geological time scale, even human time scale, right? They may take minutes, seconds, hours, and yet they can, as you mentioned, they can make up a large part of the geological record. So the archive that we study by volume or by thickness uh, may take up many, many meters or square kilometers, and yet it only took minutes to hours. And again, example would be you know, erosion or deposition due to a tsunami or a storm. You know, tsunami takes a few hours, and then you have a deposit that, that's sitting there for many millions of years, and it may be several meters thick. So we naturally attribute everything that's big and thick and widespread, we attribute to some major uh, long-lasting events, and it is not accurate in many cases. In many cases, what takes up a lot of space may not take much time at all, sometimes minutes to seconds. Are there any his- historical events that you now see through different eyes where you have a, um, a hypothesis about how it happened that's different from what's supposedly you know, written that what happened? Any, any major historical events that you've noticed? Yeah, excellent question. Yeah, just again, good example would be uh, both in Pennsylvania and in other places is the removal of the mill dams. You know, when they use small river dams for uh, grist mills to grind wheat, right, in many parts of the world. And then at some point, they remove, even now, a lot of places they're removing dams that are used for hydroelectric power. But anytime you remove the dam, all of a sudden you release all the water with all the sediment, usually mud collected. So all of a sudden you have this huge flushing of a lot of mud that now covers a lot of the stream valleys in Pennsylvania. So as a geologist, I'm walking around, I see this sort of relatively barren mud, no fossils in it, but it's thick. So you have these small creeks and they have several feet, maybe more than a meter of mud. And I think, well, that's got to take a long time. Maybe it's right after glaciation. Maybe glaciers melted and all the mud got flushed down the creeks. Nope. It all happened in a matter of probably days, and it's all related to removal of the mills. But at least, at least Richard, we had some, some recordings of this. So your example or your question with this example would be pertinent because we have some examples. We can date the mud. And we can say, oh, we can directly relate it to grist mills. People describe that the mud was blanketing the valleys. What happens when we're looking at things that are four or 500 years old? Depending on where in the world, in Europe, there were people writing things down thousand years ago, a little bit, right? Greeks, Portuguese, Slavs, and so on. You go to New Zealand or South America, there are rock carvings. There are no writings from 600 years ago. There is no written record in many parts of the world of events as recent as four or 500 years, let alone a thousand years. So it becomes even more challenging in these places where the word prehistoric takes new meaning, i.e., Prehistoric in Greece or pre-recorded history in Greece, maybe 3,000 years ago. In New Zealand, it may be 500 years ago. Is there a really old example of X number of thousands of years where, you know, someone did record on a tablet or however, a wall, you know, some, some large event that happened that you see again with different eyes? Like what's, you know, are there any events that like, again, you look back at them and you're like, wow, it could be this instead. You know, have you uncovered anything like that? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's more into archaeology. But yeah, Greeks, Egyptian, I mean, sure, they have, you know, they use either hieroglyphs or other writing. Uh, but I'm sure like in, 
In Eastern Europe, Slavs, that was more on a, on a birch bark. So much, much of it has not been preserved. But, you know, whatever was hewn into stone, Aborigines in Australia, they obviously commemorated some events, just whether you know what it means, and then remember dates. If we can figure out a date, that's one thing. So again, example, there was tsunami in 31 AD or eruption of Vesuvius, Pompeii, 79 AD, our date, right? So we sort of have a written story. But in another part of the world, something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago, it may be still recorded, right? If somebody recorded Pompeii, I mean, a Vesuvius eruption somewhere else, but they may not have recorded it sort of in writing. It would have been maybe on the cave wall or, uh, you know, eruptions obviously in Indonesia, which nearly took humans to the extinction, Toba and so on, Tambora. So it may have been recorded, but it's not recorded, you know, with a date. So it may be a cave, right. you know, cave recording of something without an actual date. So when all there was a big event and we just cannot figure out the day. But once I take my techniques and I figure out that's been an event, maybe a sand layer in a marsh, which means a tsunami, then once I radiocarbon date that event or use other techniques, I can say, oh, now it makes sense that rock carving that archaeologists said was 2,000 years old, I just dated the giant sand layer in the coastal lake to about that date. Now it makes sense. So whatever they were drawing, even though they didn't date it, I know they probably they probably uh, uh, recorded that massive tsunami event. Obviously, they didn't record it as a sand layer in the cave. They recorded it as maybe death of fish or something like that. But now I can see how our you know thick sand layer in a coastal wetland now is a geological record of a historical fact that's been recorded as a petroglyph in a nearby coastal cave. So now I can marry the two archives and you work interdisciplinarily with archaeologists, historians, ecologists, geologists to solve that riddle. And this is for me the ultimate. Again, another take home is that oftentimes you need an interdisciplinary approach, specialists from different fields, and you can solve really interesting, very applied problems. Because now if I'm working for reinsurance companies, I want to know how often does this coastline get impacted by storms and tsunamis. I may not care which mechanism or which uh, event produces the flooding, whether it's a storm, climatically driven, or tsunami, tectonically driven. But even as insurance company, I'm interested in how often does this beach get slammed by a big event because that'll impact the cost of insurance. So this is very direct applications of what we do to coastal inhabitants, not to mention their livelihood and so on. Yeah, I know you can't look at everything, but do you feel like you have skills that will lend themselves to like, let's say modern day forensics? Or, you know, can you look at modern day forensics and take anything that they figure out and apply it to what you're looking at to get even deeper insights? Sure, I actually teach teach uh, several lectures and actually taught a guest course in geoforensics. So, so what you are saying, basically using techniques, yes. So a good example is, and at first, listeners might say, well, who cares? Birds eating clams. I mean, I see it on the beach. Well, that's also sort of a riddle. But uh, we find a lot of, uh, in, ancient, in ancient record as well, we find a lot of uh, interesting you know, holes in clamshells, whether they're done by predatory mollusks or birds. You can extend it through time. That's sort of an arms race. But yes, I would say, because there's almost nothing done by 
geoscientists, paleontologists, ecologists, again, it's not easy to do in the lab, then we'll bring in geoforensics. So you can look at blunt force trauma or sharp edge trauma, and then you can bring these techniques, and then you can prove that these clamshells, were these holes we see were actually produced by shorebirds, because oftentimes it's difficult to observe live, versus a crab versus another clam. Then we can go to museums or geological record. We start finding when did this begin? When did this arms race begin? You can tell us something about the record of predation and then the record of how the prey started sort of trying to figure out ways to avoid predations. So yes, I in fact use several techniques, including georadar that's using geoforensics to, uh, you know, to solve certain cases. And I've been called on several... Uh, actually with sort of scientific expert panels, which were involved in forensic cases, actual forensic cases. In this case, they're related to property boundaries. Again, example of these small channels, coastal channels being property boundaries that ended up being multi-million dollar court cases. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Are there any great mysteries that you've run into or that is well known in, you know, in some, in some areas in geology or archaeology? Have you, have you had any insight and say, again, any any great mysteries that kind of eat at you that you're trying to figure out that you can talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, they're famous, these uh, interesting paths or roads in Turkey, which look like it's just like threaded uh, tire marks almost, but they're, they're now solid and they're produced in ash and rocks that are millions of years old. There is no way they could have been produced by modern machinery because whatever they're produced in, has been rock for millions of years. So how do you explain it? How do you explain it? Tire marks, let's say, let me give an example, in, in granite. How do you explain tire marks in granite? It makes no sense, right? Because granite today, well, it forms deep down. So it, through erosion, it gets exposed. How can you make tire marks in granite? It's impossible. You can chisel into it. You can use uh, you know, all kinds of uh, jackhammers, but you cannot produce tire marks on granite. You can produce maybe some tire marks in the lava. You remember that famous movie, Volcano, that's supposed to be driving through lava, which is impossible. But, but at least you can say it's relatively soft. Mud is soft, fine. So tire marks in mud, mud becomes a mudstone. That's easy. But now in Turkey, there are these examples. We know it was a solid rock millions of years ago. And yet they have these marks from historic, not, not cars, not quite tire mark, but they're basically uh, historic like wheel wagon paths. They're all exactly the same weights and they're winding through the landscape for many, many miles. So, so I think the solution, since it's impossible to make, obviously, wooden wheels making marks in a rock, either we misdated it, it's actually much, much, much younger than became a rock much, much more recently, or these are not wheel wagon marks, Right. Oh, what if um, like grains of sand got crunched into the, the wheels and then when the wheels went over these, you know, these granite areas, the grains of sand abraded, you know, the pressure and the weight of the, the vehicle and the grains of sand, I'm just making this up, the wheels yeah. may have abraded the rock over and over if many wagons went that way and maybe that's why it looks like that. Yeah, so that was basically one of the solutions that was exactly that. I mean, it wasn't grain of sand, but the wheels wouldn't or not just like bison, right? going over the same area many, many times, even if it's just wooden wheels. Yes, obviously with grains of sand or sandpaper, it will be even easier. I don't think they used it, but that was basically the, the alternative explanation is saying, yes, it is rock, 
Yes, it is old. Yes, these are wheel marks. Yes, they're young, but just a wearing, wearing and constant reuse of the same exact paths uh, did it. So after a long enough time, water, wood, antler, and so on, you would wear away these things. So they basically reuse these, these wheelbases. So yeah, I mean, you're right. That, that is basically the explanation that they use. Even without sand, just basically constantly using exactly the same uh, pathways for the wagons because then they're not sliding. You just put a horse or a donkey and uh, you just use it again. But you got to start somehow. So I guess they've been used for many thousands of years. Yeah, it's very cool. Ilya. Are there any you know research projects you have in the works right now that are particularly capturing your attention or you, know, you really want to make some headway on that you can talk about? Yeah, to circle back again, my current student is actually looking at the impact of bison on the landscape. And the reason I kept choosing bison, because it has the highest impact of any animal in the world, like on the, on the soil, right? Because uh, it's heavy, and yet it stands on these, you know, four cloven hoofs. Like if you divide, divide the weight of the elephant by its flat feet, the impact is not nearly as much, right? So... Somebody in high heels versus sneakers, high heels will always produce deeper holes. So again, the impact of a bison is the greatest of any land animal today at chiseling away at the soil. So we're actually going to go to bison farms with some lab experiments. So that's an interesting experiment to quantify. So then, you know, wallows that bison make when they dust bathe, trail they make and so on. So that's one of them. You know, more work on sea turtles and uh, maybe collaborating with ecologists. And another one actually looking, another student working on uh, looking at the historical uh, tidal channel in New Jersey, which was used actually during Revolutionary War, which is now completely closed. It has a big town there now, but there's this legacy of an ancient uh, tidal channel, tidal inlet, which was a nice conduit for trade, for uh, military operation, for warfare. And today, again, on a much larger scale than anything produced by animals, these natural tidal inlets become boundaries for towns, cities, sometimes even nations. They uh, have interesting structure as far as uh, groundwater, right? Whenever you're looking for potable water in coastal regions, which is a huge issue because there is salt water all around. So that becomes an issue. And uh, it actually has a, a a lot of interesting application finding both historic and prehistoric rivers and channels. So on a smaller scale, we may be looking at things produced by animals, but once you multiply them, they become much larger scale. And then you have a geological events, like again, storms and tsunamis that produce their own signatures, which again, become storm channels, tidal inlets that humans use for many, many, many years. And some of them are even made into state, national, and even international boundaries. Very interesting. Well, cool. Ilya, it was great to talk to you. Where can people find out more about your work? It's fascinating. Yeah. So basically, if you uh, just look at the Temple University, you can put in coastal research. Uh, you know, I'm at coast.temple.edu uh, and you can easily find find the website. So you can just basically put coastal research or coastal geology, Temple University, and it should be able to bring, bring them to uh, some of the research we're doing. Excellent. Well, Ilya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your work and uh, very interesting insights. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for your insightful questions and even some of your uh, answers. Def- definitely interesting interesting solutions to some, some, uh, some problems we still have.
Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition made with high-quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than 3 grams of sugar per serving, like Organifi green juice with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Or Organifi red juice, a superfood punch that increases energy without caffeine and only 2 grams of sugar. Each Organifi blend is easy to use simply by mixing it with water or your favorite beverage while on the go, and they don't compromise quality for taste. Organifi takes pride in offering the best-tasting superfood products on the market at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high-quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Go to Organifi.com genius and use the code genius for 20% off your order. That's Organifi.com forward slash genius. Use code genius to get 20% off any item. Remember, www.organifi.com slash genius. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.